Our responsive psalm this evening is Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in his faithfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tonight's gospel is taken from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. The Lord be with you. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to their own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Gospel of Christ.
Would you pray with me? Father, we pray for your coming to judge all people with righteousness and justice to the end that the world would be established in your Son's everlasting rule. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we've been going through a series of psalms this past Advent season, I mean, why not look at another psalm while we're at it? You know, a psalm reflection isn't a typical Christmas thing to do, but every high festival of the church is, is accompanied by a psalm lectionary reading anyhow, so it's still quite appropriate that we linger in the psalms as we have been fostering as a community this posture of looking back and looking forward. That is, remembering God's first advent on Christmas and longing for His second advent in the future. And much of the Psalms is about this posture of prophetic recollection and imagination, looking back, looking forward. Now, before we, uh, we turn to our Psalm, as a way of preamble, uh, the Hebrew Psalms were meant to be sung out loud as they were prayed out loud by the Levites and then by the people responsively. And we have only begun to sing again in church. It has not been even a month yet since we've resumed. You may remember that first Sunday of Advent back in November. It was, uh, it was quite emotional for some of us when, as though it came as a shock to again hear an array of voices behind and around us in this space. It was also familiar and easy to get back into. Yet it was strangely magical and fresh, like every first snowfall of every year, as we all again tried to modulate our voices, trying to hit the notes, maintain melody and harmony with everyone else. And I, I describe all that not just so that we may cherish again and you are freedom and ability to sing, though still detained in these masks, but that we may also partake of it afresh, just as we are able. Because singing is one of the few ways our humanity participates in and gives expression to the mysterious and to the sublime. Singing is one of the most intimate and vulnerable, vulnerable ways we entrust our humanity to one another most especially to God. I mean, that's why in both Judaism and in Christianity, singing is called a sacrifice or an offering of praise that, as it both unifies and engages different aspects of who and what we are. We use our lungs, our diaphragms, our lips, throats, tongues, our hearts and minds to, together straining to make music unto God. It takes a lot out of us just to sing. And don't we also know its mysterious power? You know, that courage and risk that one takes to perform a song that you had written in front of others, the bedtime lullabies that we sing to a crying baby in our arms, those dance parties that turn into karaoke sessions, thousands of fans chanting in a stadium, the awe and rapture of choir and symphony in a basilica, now, earlier this spring, American comedian and commentator Stephen Colbert, he did this online interview with Dr. Michio Kaku, 
He's a world-renowned Japanese-American theoretical physicist. Namichio co-founded the string field theory of physics. So in that interview, Michio was explaining to Colbert the string theory. In that, as the name suggests, physical matter is theorized to be made up of strings vibrating to distinct frequencies. And then Michio said this, and I quote, The universe is a symphony of strings, and the mind of God is cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That's at least one prevailing theory of, uh, of the universe. And then we read in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John saw this, describing hearing Jesus' voice like it was the sound of many waters, descriptive of a never-ending river, like the streaming of notes from a song, from a melody, from a symphony. J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, he picked up on this, and he portrayed in this fantasy novel series, the chief creator god named Eru Iluvatar, singing all the universe to existence. And then we read in another prophetic book, God now being described here as singing over his people, like a groom serenading over his bride during their wedding day. Now all this to say, that whenever we sing as church, whenever we sing together to worship, we are, as it were, imitating God himself, joining with the angels who themselves are always singing, never ceasing to sing, as we offer up a bit of our humanity to God in song, entrusting ourselves into this holy mystery, into the sublimity of his divine life. And the Psalms already give us ancient bars, notes, meters to sing alongside with as the symphony of the new creation continues to stream and rush out of Jesus' lips. Now, with that, I invite us to turn to Psalm 96 in your Bibles or apps, or you can pick up a Bible in front of you. It's on page 550, Psalm 96. Now, there are three sections to Psalm 96 which as a whole celebrates God as the king of the universe. The first section is about the king's glory. The second is about the king's rights. And the third, the king's coming. First, the king's glory. Second, the king's rights. Third, the king's coming. Now, it's difficult to pin down a date when Psalm 96 was composed we at least know that it was likely sung almost in its entirety, quoted almost word for word, as it appears in the book of First Chronicles, chapter 16. Now this recounts the time when King David finally defeated the Philistines that have oppressed Israel for many decades. See, at this time, David then recaptured the Ark of the Covenant, which the Philistines had taken from Israel when they had defeated King Saul. So having just gotten back the ark, David processed it up with an orchestral parade into Jerusalem, up to the summit of Mount Moriah. We know later on that Moriah was later renamed to be Zion, where Solomon's temple would be built, into which the ark was then transferred into for its final resting place. This was around 3,000 years ago. So imagine this, David with his entourage of commanders, soldiers, Levites, 
alongside a throng of civilians in victory in a huge parade going up into Jerusalem, into Mount Zion, with priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, singing and dancing to Psalm 96. These psalms together made up an enthronement song. It's a song of enthronement. But this is not for King David. This is for God, whose visible presence in the Ark was physically carried up to his resting place, his throne, as it were, on top of Mount Zion, inside a tent, a tabernacle that David had pitched for it, where God would again rule as king in the midst of his people. Now all that I've described that had happened there, it was all new. It was all new to the people. It was unprecedented for the ancient Jews at the time to have done this, because none of what they did under King David was prescribed in the laws of Moses. They weren't told to do any of this. It seemed like they were making it all up as they went along under King David. There wasn't anything wrong with what they did. It was just all new. It was all new. But what they did, what they did there, gives us an insight into what David and the people were thinking about, were feeling, were reflecting about God in light of victory, in light of the re-entry of the ark into Jerusalem. See, before then, there was no official Jewish festival or song about God's enthronement or about God being king. It's because the Jewish people already understood that God is king. He's already enthroned. He's the king of the world. All their festivals and songs, they celebrated God's rescue, God's provision, God's forgiveness. Nothing about God being king. And then so Psalm 96 here, it's so new. This is so new. That's why we read in verse 1, Sing to the Lord a new song. This was meant literally. As a psalm was possibly sung for the very first time during the ark's re-entry into Jerusalem, which visually established Yahweh's supremacy over the gods of the Philistines. See, this added a new dimension to the Jewish understanding of salvation. Wherein God, being king of the universe, was now being received. He was being received into a once pagan citadel, a once pagan realm, Jerusalem once belonging to the Jebusites, and then recently by the Philistines. Now it's under the reign of Yahweh, Israel's God. In other words, God's kingship, though already being king, was now being received in realms that did not acknowledge him. As king. This is the added layer to the meaning of salvation. That's why we read in verse 2 Tell of his salvation day by day, declare his glory among the nations, his works among the peoples. Now, this is kind of surprising for a Jewish military victory song because of how international the focus is on this song. But it's not so surprising. I mean, there's a Jewish understanding that God's salvation is meant for the whole world. So the lyrics to this psalm, it's not coming out of some some Zionist uh, nationalism or, or Jewish exceptionalism. It's a prayer for the whole world to receive and acknowledge God as king. The reason that the psalm gives isn't because Israel or the Jewish religion is 
better than the rest. That's not the reason. The reason is in verse 5. Because first, the gods of the nations are worthless. Then second, God is the creator. He made all things. In other words, God is real. God is real. And idols are, they're not real. They don't exist. The the combined phrase here, worthless idols, that's just one word. In Hebrew, it just means nothings, nuns, immaterials. Because in the end, the so-called gods of the world, they don't exist. The idols that were crafted to represent these so-called nothings, they have no real value. There's no weight to them. So if they have no weight, there's, there's no real glory to them. Whereas God, because he made everything, he has real, substantial, inherent glory. God is the creator of creation. So this is the first section. The psalm establishes the king's glory as seen from salvation and creation. That's the king's glory. We move on to the second section. The king's rights in verses 7 to 9. Now, it starts with a three-part command to ascribe to God what he deserves. This is a repetition for in the first section, right, in verses 1 to 2. Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. That's three times. And then here, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord three times again. What are we being summoned to ascribe or give to God? In verse 7, glory and strength. Give to God his glory. So, this is confusing. Right? First section, that's already established. God has glory. Why are we asked to give God more glory? Right? Why are we to give God more glory? He has the glory already. It's not that God runs low on glory and he needs a top-up. That's not what's happening. And if it's not out of need, God is maybe wanting more than he already has. Maybe he's some glory hound. He just wants more. That's not what's going on here. I mean, there are two reasons. First, it's what God deserves. Whether or not he needs it or wants it, that's not the question. See, for example, it's, it's, it's reasonable and appropriate to applaud and recognize someone who performed or served with excellence. That's appropriate to do. And it really doesn't matter in the end whether that person deserved it or wanted it. We applaud, we recognize But that's not for us to decide whether he was needing it or he was wanting it. See, for God, at least, he he made creation. He saved. He continues to save. He deserves the glory. It's his right, regardless of him needing it or wanting it. But secondly, I think this is the most important one, we give what God deserves because it's only good for us. It's good for us in the sense that we are missing out when the heavens and the universe are doing the same thing all over and over again. We're just so dumb and foolish to do anything but. See, it's like being bored asleep at the courtside seat of an NBA Finals game. Or you're playing Candy Crush while you're on a helicopter tour over the Grand Canyon. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. It only makes sense to give God what he deserves. It's good for us. It's what we were meant to do. It's the king's rights. 
Finally, the third section, the king's coming in verses 10 to 13. Now, the immediate context, of course, of this section was God's coming to judge the Philistines. That is, judgment against the gods of the Philistines, showing them to be nothings, false, worthless, powerless. How do we know? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is on top of Mount Zion. Jerusalem used to be Philistine occupation. Now, God reigns visibly over them. But there's this prophetic imagination of the psalm that looks forward to when God will come to judge not just the political oppressors of Israel, but he will come to judge the world. In verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This is an end times metaphor for when the seas and the oceans they will become so calm as they appear to not move at all. Like they're a sheet of glass. Because in Jewish imagery, the nations of the world, they're depicted, they're, they're depicted as foaming and upturning like the seas, the oceans. They're random, uncontrollable. They have no law, as it were, of God that Israel has. They're like the oceans. But when God comes again, the psalmist is looking here, David that he will calm the uproar of the peoples. And so establish the world, secure it, bolt it down. It would no longer move. It will not be shaken. It's secure. But then something else happens when God comes. Something radical. The inanimate world becomes reanimated in verses 11 to 12. Now here we see another three-part thing again. Actually, it's four-part of let so-and-so do this, right? The first part, sing to the Lord three times. Second section, ascribe to the Lord three times. Here, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. Let the field exult. Then shall the trees ring and sing. This is the moment when God's creation and God's salvation meet again. Creation fully alive because creation has been fully saved. This is because in the last verse, verse 13, God's final act of salvation is his coming to judge creation. This is when God will put creation back together. Or we say idiomatically, he will put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Saving creation completely from sin. Then releasing it for how it was always meant to be. And it's as though the trees... The rivers, the mountains, the animals were originally meant to talk, to sing, to shout for joy. But somehow that sin took away their voice. This is not perhaps literal, but it's poetic language for creation's unimaginable possibilities. When total salvation has come, this is what will happen. This is what we imagine to happen at the king's coming. Psalm 96, king's glory, king's rights, king's coming. What does this psalm have to do with Christmas? A bit over 300 years ago, the English hymn writer Isaac Watts, he published his anthology of hymns called the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. That's a long title. See, it was Watts' most ambitious work and his largest contribution towards congregational singing. 
Now, as the title suggests, uh, Watts paraphrased every single Hebrew psalm to English rhyme and meter, relating each one to the New Testament. Now, in the anthology under Psalm 98, Watts wrote for it a subtitle. He calls it the Messiah's coming and kingdom. And the hymn starts off with these words, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Now, despite that hymn being under Psalm 98, Watts actually borrowed words from Psalm 96 because of how similar they are. But he took the lyrics from Psalm 96 and put it here. See, Watts made the connection between the Psalm's prophetic vision of heaven and nature singing to the news of the coming of the King on Christmas. And we know today that this Psalm has become and is, as we know today, still one of the best known and most sung carols for more than three centuries. Because on Christmas Day, which we will celebrate tomorrow, the king of the universe did not come inside a golden wooden box of the ark being carried by priests into Jerusalem. The king of the universe came inside the ark of a virgin's womb being carried by his mother, Mary, being carried up to the little town of David City to be born and laid in a manger as his tabernacle, as his tent. As Luke the Evangelist recounted in his gospel, heaven and nature began to sing, become reanimated, as it were, around the time and news of Jesus' birth. See, having learned about her elderly cousin Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. Mary runs off and visits her with her own news to share, herself being pregnant with her own child of promise. As soon as the two meet, the fetus inside Elizabeth's uh, womb leapt when he heard Mary's voice as though he was dancing to music. Then Mary and Elizabeth followed suit in their own song, together bursting into prophecy, into music, singing about the coming of the King who will judge and save the world. My soul magnifies the Lord, heaven and nature singing. And much later, an angel broke news to some shepherds in the fields at night. The night sky became like noonday as all of heaven showed up to sing the chorus, glory to God in the highest, heaven and nature singing. David sang about his king's glory, seen in his salvation and creation. And now we're singing about the king's glory in the incarnation, God's glory in the flesh of Jesus Christ where salvation and creation meet in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. David sang and invited us to ascribe, to give to God his rights. But then God came demanding not his rights, but he gave it up. He gave it all up. He did not count equality with God, but he took on the form, the body of a slave, so that he could finally share his rights, his glory to all of creation. David sang about a vision of heaven and earth singing at the king's coming. And now we, the church, no longer just Israel, but a body of people from all over the world, we're singing in these last days for the reunion of earth and heaven, for creation to be reignited with songs of freedom. 
All the realms invisible, invisible, singing to Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, for He comes to make all things new. Heaven and nature sing, and they are still singing. Question is, do you hear them sing? Do we hear them sing? And if so, would we not join them? Can we not join them with our own voices, with our bodies, with all that we are? Let heaven and nature sing. Let us sing to the Lord a new song. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.